grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It was one week ago. Uh, it was Sunday afternoon. I was sitting in my kitchen. Uh, my wife, Lauren, was in the living room playing with my niece, Phoebe, and my nephew, Aaron. Some of you met them last week, and my sister-in-law, Katie, was there. Uh, my brother, Matt, who you heard from last week, uh, was in the gym. And uh, I was on my phone, and I received a text message from a friend. Uh, there's a group of us from seminary and college who uh, talk about different things, and so uh, th this message came in, and uh, it was at 2.46 p.m., and the message said, Guys, uh, I just heard on the news Kobe died in a helicopter accident. Over the next few minutes, uh, I found myself scouring the internet as if I was some sort of investigative reporter trying to break the same story. And eventually, more and more news outlets confirmed this news, and I sat there in silence and in shock. Uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, last week, uh, Kobe Bryant died. Uh, Kobe Bryant, who is well-known, perhaps most well-known, for being the star player for the Los Angeles Lakers for 20 years. Uh, he, along with one of his daughters and seven others, died tragically in a helicopter accident uh, just last Sunday morning in California. And so over the past uh, week, every sports radio, every perhaps even news network was filled with tributes, with reflections, all of these people sharing the wisdom and the knowledge that Kobe had inspired them. And uh, it was interesting because it wasn't just about his life on the court, but perhaps more about his life off the court. His life as a father, as a husband, and uh, to many, considered him a brother. And so if you're like me and you listen to all these different news networks and especially sports radio, sports talk show hosts, uh, you, you couldn't escape it, and yet you also just wanted to hear all these things. And so I found myself reflecting, uh, reflecting on the value of life, but also reflecting on basketball. Uh, and in the midst of my reflections on basketball, I found myself thinking about uh, this one specific move, you might say. Uh, it's called the crossover. Uh, and it's something that many basketball players learn from very early on in their life, uh, especially when they're learning how to dribble the ball. Uh, there are plenty of fancier ways to do it, but due to certain restrictions, I'm going to keep it simple for you this morning. Uh, and the concept of the crossover is uh, you typically have the ball in your dominant hand, and the purpose is to switch the ball quickly from one hand to the other in order to keep your defender's expectations a little shattered, a little broken. Uh, they think you're going one way, and you cross over, literally, and go the other. Uh, something like this. Uh, much quicker, of course, in live action, uh, but for the sake of this and not losing it. Uh, you get the point. Uh, and so this idea of the crossover, of course, uh, the purpose is to rattle your defender's expectations, uh, to make them think you're going one way when really you can use the other hand and go the other way. Now, I don't know about you, but I personally don't think God is a basketball player. At least I've never imagined him that way. Uh, soccer, on the other hand, well, you know, best sport in the world. I get it. Uh, but not a basketball player. And yet... Uh, as I found myself reflecting on basketball, reflecting on the crossover, I realized that 
In our lesson for this morning, uh, St. Paul's letter to the people in Corinth, this is God's crossover. See, uh, I want to explore that with you this morning. If you're following along in 1 Corinthians, we're at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, And as many of you may know, the people in Corinth, well, they were an interesting group of people, to say the least. Uh, There were a lot of them. It was a very diverse place. Um, There were Jews and there were Greeks, and mixed in all of those people, there were Christians. And being a Christian in Corinth was really, really hard because of all the paganism surrounding them. And so Paul, at the beginning of his letter in chapter 1, he's writing to the Christians, but he's talking about the non-Christians. Uh, He's sharing the perspective of those who do not yet believe, the Jews and the Greeks alike. And in fact, uh, Paul gets at the heart of the reason why they don't believe. Uh, See, for those who do believe, Paul knows that Christ has already been revealed. But for those who don't believe, Paul tells us why they don't believe in the Messiah. In verse 22, he says, Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. The Jewish people had very clear expectations of who this Messiah, who their Messiah was going to be. In fact, you heard about some of these expectations last week in the prophet Isaiah's words, Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The Jewish people had expectations of what their Messiah was going to do. He was going to bring them this exceeding joy. He was going to take them from out of darkness into the light. He was going to break the rod of the oppressor, to break the yoke upon their backs. Their Messiah was going to do wonderful, incredible, amazing signs. And so they did not picture a Messiah who simply would fit in with the crowd. They thought their Messiah would be more powerful. They thought that he would stand out amongst the rest of the people that he would perform so many signs and wonders that you would know who he was. That was the expectation for their Messiah. And they were not going to let anything else get in the way. And as for the Greeks, um, they weren't really concerned with signs. They were more concerned about wisdom or or knowledge. Uh, Something that many of you may have heard before or already know, uh, the word philosopher, which comes from the Greek language, means love of wisdom. And so uh, there were plenty of self-proclaimed philosophers back then, these Greeks who wanted to know the Messiah through either some means of revelation, uh, just some way of really knowing it. It was all about the wisdom that they could get. These were the expectations for the Messiah for those who did not believe. And interestingly, uh, Paul tells us what their perspective was like for the people who did believe. Uh, They had a special name for the ones that believed in this Christ. They were called Morias. And this name, uh, it's a word that Paul uses in the text in verse 24. He says, but we, the ones who believe, proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. 
That word foolishness has the same root word for the word fool, that is, moria. Now, uh, we have a word in English that is very similar to the Greek word moria, but I'm not going to say it, uh, but it also means fool or foolish. And essentially, that is what the non-believing Jews and Greeks thought about the Christians. They were morias. Now, uh, I want to be honest here, and I want to say that I know that all of you have been called a fool before. Uh, it might have been to your face, or perhaps it was behind your back, but I know that you have been called a fool. I know this because I know what you believe. In fact, I know it because I myself have been called a fool. That's what the people who were believing in the Christ, who shared Paul's beliefs, were called fools. And our world is not so different than the world in Corinth when it comes to the unbelievers. See, our world has certainly set out expectations of what it means to be powerful in the world. Typically, power is associated with some sort of money and status, and this societal status forces you to live with certain expectations. Uh, for example, if you're a young person, you're supposed to try to get a lot of money to boast about this money, whether it's in what you wear or all of the possessions that you have. Uh, and if you're, adult, if you're an adult, of course, that only exacerbates as you have more stuff, as you can get more. Power and money are linked as things in our world that society has set out. And if you have power, you must have money. And if you have both of those things, you must live to a certain expectation. And the same thing can be said about wisdom. Wisdom is something that uh, people seek, that they, they want so badly. They crave what it means to be wise. The world would describe wisdom uh, for the youth as something like getting the best score on your SATs and getting into the best colleges. Uh, for adults, it would be something like continuing to su be successful in your career, climbing the ladder over and over again, always waiting for the next level of achievement. Now, on the surface, those things are not inherently bad. In fact, some of those things can be very good. Uh, I'm sure we all know people who have a lot of money or who are very wise, and they are also believers. But see, the world sets out this expectation that if you have those things, that is what is most important, that those are the things that matter most. Much like in Corinth, our world today has set expectations for what it means to have power and to be wise. But in our text for today, Paul reveals to the Christians in Corinth and to us God's crossover. See, in verse 21, Paul writes, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. The wisdom of God was not to reveal himself according to the expectations of the world. The Jews wanted these signs, and that's not how God was going to do it. The Greeks wanted to really know and understand that this was the Messiah, and that's not what God is going to use. Instead, God uses those Morias, us, the fools. He uses the message being shared amongst the fools. And why? Because that is how God chooses to reveal the message 
of the gospel. Just as Paul writes in verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those who are called by God are fools. Instead, they are the ones who believe that the Christ has been revealed. To the outside world, they are confusing people, and yet, to God, they are the ones who have been called to believe that the Messiah has been revealed, that Jesus Christ is the one who is to come, their Messiah. The Jews, uh, they claimed that they wanted signs, and yet Jesus was among them. He had been healing people of their blindness. He had been making the lame walk. He had been calling out spiritual demons. He had been living among them, doing all these wonderful signs, and yet that wasn't enough. As for the Greeks, uh, they sought to know Jesus, this wisdom, and Jesus lived among them. He spent time with them. He taught right in front of them. He revealed himself to these very people, but that wasn't enough for them to really know him. They wanted to know, but uh, the Jews with their signs and the Greeks with their wisdom, that's not what God uses. Instead, God uses the cross over. As you heard Paul say in verse 18, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The message of the cross is a message that is foolish to those who are unbelieving. To the unbelieving Jews and Greeks in Corinth, to the unbelievers in our world, the message of the cross is foolishness. It's something that only a fool would believe. Now raise your hand if you are a fool. Yes, everyone, please raise your hands. Uh, See, because if believing in the message of the cross means that you are a fool according to the world, then consider me the greatest fool. Because the message of the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God as it has been revealed to us through Christ. And it's what happens on that cross that we know, that we believe. See, because on that cross, God chose what is weak in the world, what would be seen without power in the world, to demonstrate his greatness and his power. God comes down. And he takes on the weak and powerless flesh of man in Jesus Christ. And he lives in the world, but not according to the world. He doesn't seek power or money. He doesn't try to be more knowledgeable. Instead, he spends time with the lowest people. He teaches and lives amongst the sinners and the scoffers, those who would have been considered the fools. Jesus spends time with these people and he reveals to them the message of the cross, the message that the Messiah is here, that the Messiah is going to do something the world could never expect. And God does so through a means of weakness, according to the world. He uses the cross. But on the cross, that is where God's power and wisdom are revealed. Uh, That's when God's power and wisdom are on full display. See, the world thinks that God's power and wisdom ends on the cross, but in reality, for those who us who believe, God's power and wisdom begins on the cross. 
For as he comes down from the cross and dies and is buried, just three days later he rises again. And in his resurrection, the cross over is complete. You know what, church? God's crossover is better than the basketball move. Uh, You see, because in basketball, moving from one hand to the other, it gives this impression that, well, both hands are now equal, that you don't really know which way I'm going. But God's crossover, it takes these things that the world thinks is important, and they go down as God comes up. Because nothing in this world is greater than the power or the wisdom of God that is shown through us through Jesus Christ. And Paul reveals this to us as he says it in verse 25. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. God's own foolishness is wiser than any human foolishness. God's own weakness is stronger than any man. There is no one, nothing in this world, no power, no wisdom that is stronger than our God who uses what the world thinks is weak and powerless to reveal that he is almighty. The message of the cross. So my dear brothers and sisters, Let us go out into the world and be fools. Fools according to the standards of the world because as fools, we are ones who believe in this message of the cross. The message of salvation. The message of redemption. The message of sanctification. The message of the cross. And perhaps, let us teach people about the crossover. God's cross over. The message of the cross. Jesus Christ and him crucified, who died and rose again, who lives now and forever. Let us share that message with the world. For those of us who believe in the message of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. At this time, I invite the congregation to stand as we continue with the confession of our common Christian faith found in the words of the Apostles' Creed.